Today we um, we're about to start our second week of reading through the Old Testament together, and we kicked this off uh, last weekend. We've done this a number of times as a church. We'll read through our Merce Bibles, sections of these Bibles, uh, and focusing on different aspects of it. And this time we're working through the Old Testament prophets, and we began last week by looking at the story of Hosea. An Old Testament prophet who God called to do kind of an odd and unusual thing. He called him to marry a woman who was a prostitute. And then she, she ran away from him and she went back into prostitution. Listen, they have kids, but God says, go back to her, love her as I love Israel. So there's this parallel between how God loves Israel and the relationship that, um, that Hosea has with his wife, Gomer. Now, along with that, we saw the, the extent of God's love. We saw something about God's nature and love that God, despite the, the sin and the rebellion, uh, the spiritual prostitution, I guess you could say, of his people, that he continued to love them, even in the midst of that, that God's love truly has no limits. It's everlasting love. Well, today we are looking at Isaiah. We'll be reading through portions of this. You can follow along. It'll be in Isaiah 29, verses 10 through 16. And a verse out of chapter 30 as well. It'll be on the screen behind you as we work our way through his sermon. And Isaiah, a little bit about Isaiah. He was a prophet who was called by God to go and confront the nation of Israel and their leaders and king. Uh, to confront them about the idolatry and the rebellion and the injustice. And as we read through Isaiah, the first 39 verse uh, chapters, there's a lot of ch- chapters, 66. The first 39 chapters focus on... Uh, pronouncement after pronouncement of judgment uh, and of warnings. It's pretty heavy stuff. But hang in there because when you get to chapters 40 through 66, there's a lot more hope and promises of better days ahead. Now, even though we don't recognize many of the names and many of the places in this book, and even though there's a lot of heavy stuff about judgment and, and sin and rebellion, if we slow down and if we listen... And if we open our eyes and open our ears, we will see and we'll hear that God is speaking to us just as he did to the people of Israel back then. And there's great value for us if we can learn from the the negative example, the primarily negative example during this time of the people of Israel. It's it's sort of like when you uh, if you have an uh, older sibling, maybe an older brother or sister, we learn from them, right? We learn from their example. We learn positively. We, we do this, do that, work hard, whatever it might be. But we also learn from their mistakes, right? We see them do something and think, you know, I don't think I want to go down that path because I've seen where that leads them. Or if we find ourselves stuck in that wrong path, maybe we'll come to realization, hey, I know where this ends up, so I need to change things. So we can learn from negative examples, can't we? I think of this personally, uh, our daughter, Anna, when uh, she's about three years old, um, she had this uh, this tendency to be she was really strong willed. And she had this tendency that when she crossed the street, she wouldn't look both ways. And we'd say, Anna, you must look both ways. Uh, Something bad could happen. But, you know, she's three years old. She's strong willed. And I think it kind of went. Her back up, and she just wasn't going to do it. And so she persisted in that. So we got kind of worried about that. But then on vacation in Minnesota, a perfect example uh, opportunity opened up for us to kind of have an object lesson. We were camping up in Itasca, which is up by the boundary waters of the Mississippi. And um, you have to walk across this road to get to to the bathroom and, and where the water you get to water and stuff. 
And there was this squirrel who was just smashed flat on the road, just squashed, you know. And so, aha, you know, once in a while you get kind of uh, inspiration. You walk across the road with daughter to go to the bathroom and say, Anna, look at that squirrel. Yeah, he didn't look both ways, you know. And, and, and her eyes got huge and she realized, and, and it really, the light went on, off for her. And she, we had no more problems with her looking both ways after that. So you can learn, you can learn from negative examples, can't you? And I think as we look at the Old Testament story of the people of Israel and the prophets, we're going to learn from them and perhaps maybe we'll see ourselves if we're honest, we'll see ourselves in here as well. Let's pick it up with chapter 29, beginning uh, with verse 10. We're going to start with some heavy stuff. We're going to end with some good news. Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed the eyes of your prophets and your visionaries. Now, why would God do that? Oh, why would he close the eyes and put kind of a, a deep spiritual sleep, a, a lethargy, I guess you could say, upon the people of Israel and the prophets, especially because they were the ones who were sent to speak truth, you know, to challenge, to, to affirm, to, to whatever the message God had. They were supposed to do that. But the problem was, as you read what precedes this, we see that those prophets who were supposed to speak only that which came from God, they're ad-libbing. They're, they're, they're getting off script. They are telling the people what they want to hear. They stopped listening to God and spoke their own messages. What was it the people wanted to hear? Well, it helps to have context. Assyria was this neighboring country that was growing, becoming sort of a regional superpower, militarily, economically, and so on and so forth. And they were overtaking areas in the region. And so they were a clear and present danger to the people of Israel. And in a nutshell... Assyria's on the way up, Israel's on the way down. It was obvious. And the king and the people, uh, they, they want to be in denial about this. They, they want to hear that everything's going to be okay, that everything's all right, that they're on the right trajectory as a people and as individuals. They want to be told that their way of life is good. They want to hear messages that confirm and justify how they're living. They don't want to hear all this judgment stuff, these, these warnings. But that was the message that was needed the medicine that was needed, that God had for them. And the prophets, all except for Isaiah and a few others, they, they, they want to be praised. They desire access and power to the king. And they know repentance and judgment and warnings isn't going to fly, isn't going to get them that. So they do their own thing. They give the people what they want. And God closes their eyes and closes their ears. In a sense, God says, you don't want to listen to me. You choose to ignore me. You remember those times when you, you heard me speak through the scriptures? Gone. Those times when you experienced my presence in worship? Absent. Those times when you sensed me while you prayed? Non-existence. God gives them over to spiritual dullness and, and apathy. And, and, and the fruit of that, or rather the cause of it more likely was hypocrisy and, and a lack of apostasy of, 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 of wisdom. Now, what's hypocrisy? It's a term we throw around a lot. It's when you say one thing and you do the opposite. It's when a person uh, speaks of integrity and purity, but then they live their lives in the other direction. It's when you're one thing with one group of people, but you're something else with a different group of people. It's when your, your beliefs and what you say you stand for, they don't match up with your actions or your attitudes or, or, or your values. 
You know, tragically, that's how a lot of people see Christians today. That's the perception anyways. And sadly, sometimes the perception is, is well-founded. Listen to how God you know, feels about hypocrisy. Listen to what he says. These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Ouch! No punches pulled there. All your words don't mean anything. You say you love me, you ignore my commands. You say love, you love me, you ignore the poor or take advantage of them. You, you say you love me, you think of yourself first. You're materialistic, you chase after idols. You say you love me, I don't think you know what that word means. You know, anybody who's been in a one-sided relationship knows what's this like. The other person says they're committed, they're all in, they want the best for you, but, but you start to realize, you can tell, you know, they, they don't really mean it. They honor you with their lips, but their heart is far from you. And their worship of me, he wrote, he said, is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So they're, they're just going through the motions in worship as well. There's a veneer of devotion. It's skin deep. But when you scratch the surface, you dig just a little bit deeper, you see what their true devotion is. It's revealed. It's to themselves, to their comfort, to their, their way of life. And their worship apparently consisted of patterns and requirements that were not instituted by God, but by them. We don't know exactly what they were, but, but, but they're, they're, it's obvious their worship was designed to, to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel good about themselves, to make them feel you know, superior. But worship is not about us, is it? It's about God. It's about honoring him. It's about acknowledging him. It's about confessing our sins sincerely, giving sacrificially, not out of obligation, but out of love. It's about seeking God's heart and listening. It's about responding to what he says. It's about encouraging each other. It's bringing our, our gifts and talents to, to worship and to, to the body to, for God's glory. It's about seeking his truth, not seeking justification for how we want to live. It's about actively being with God's people, singing his praise, engaging in worship, not just checking a box. Oh, did, did church this week. It's about Jesus lifting him high, focusing on the good news, emphasizing his, his life, his teachings, his death for our sins, his resurrection, and his coming again. And it's about responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction or assurance or guidance. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. That's pretty harsh. But I've got to be honest, there have been times in my life, no doubt, when that would be a fair statement about me. God desires authenticity and sincerity and humility. Not perfection, not, not performance, but a real authentic relationship. Verse 14. Because of this, because of what? Because of the inauthentic worship, because of the the, 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 the disconnect between their lips and their hearts. Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away. The intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. So God's being maybe a little snarky here, a little sarcastic, but it's well-deserved. 
He says, you think you're so smart, so brilliant. Well, okay, now there's going to be a lack of common sense. There'll be a paucity of wisdom. People won't know what's right side up. They won't know right from wrong. Uh, They won't know the best way to live life. They will live self-destructive, unhealthy lifestyles without purpose or meaning. They'll call evil good and good evil. They won't know the difference between right and wrong, nor will their leaders, and nor will their smartest people, their most educated people. Because of your arrogance and rebellion, you have brought this upon yourselves. Verse 15. What sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their evil deeds in the dark. The Lord can't see us, they say. He doesn't know what's going on. How foolish can you be? You know, sort of like the the story uh, um, from a Christian college, a cafeteria. Uh, They would have kind of a buffet line, and and for whatever reason, uh, students were eating, taking more cookies than they should, and so the people came later, wouldn't have anything, so they put a sign out saying, uh, take one only by the cookies, take one only, God is watching. And some smart like took the sign, put it down by the apples, and put a new sign by the cookies, which said, take two, God is watching the apples. God, God is paying attention. God sees, and we can't just do whatever we want and live however we want and think there'll be no consequences. Verse 16. He, God, is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me? Does the Jarvis say the potter who made it me is, is stupid? I mean, you read this and it's almost comical in its absurdity. But it's a common attitude with us human beings to think that we're smarter and better than God, that we know better, that we don't need him. We don't say that, most of us, but... But that's often maybe how we, how we live. The creator is always greater than the created. Where we are limited in our understanding, God is not. Where we are limited in our power, God is not. Where we are limited in our compassion and our patience, God is not. Where we are limited in our love, as we saw last week, thank God he is not. Later in Isaiah chapter 55, we read this. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's a comforting thought. To know that we have a God who has the the big picture, who has a plan and a purpose, and that that plan and purpose is for our good. Let's move further into the good news. Chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Only in returning to me. Now, your repentance is a word that isn't in current favor, you know, most of the time for a lot of folks. But it's a word that describes an action that leads us to restoration and salvation. The Greek word is metanoia, which literally means turn around and it's a reversal. Practically speaking, it's a recognition that you're on the wrong path, that you're headed away from God. And it's more than a recognition because we can know we're on the wrong path. We do all the time. But knowing it doesn't mean much if it doesn't lead to us doing something 
to a change of direction, to a change of life. It involves confession. It involves an acknowledgement of a need to be forgiven. It involves a desire to be restored and to be saved. King David models this for us really powerfully in Psalm 51. He he'd committed adultery and he arranged for his adulteress's uh, husband to be killed in battle. And he, he says things like this, paraphrasing, Have mercy, wash me from my sin. Cleanse me, give me a new heart. I know I've sinned deeply. Make me new. Make me steadfast in a way to follow you. Restore to me the joy of, of salvation. God urges his people, turn around, repent. And he says, and rest. What does it mean to rest in God? It's not primarily about sitting in his presence, very quiet and listening. Maybe that's part of it, but not primarily. It's not about sitting back and letting God do the work. It's about trust, about faith. Rest in me. Lean on me. Only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. In quietness and confidence is your strength. Now, the people of Israel were not quiet and they were not confident as they saw Assyria growing as a power, they became frantic. And they scurried around, discussing things, think, making plans, worried about Assyria. And instead of placing their confidence in God, they sought out an arrangement with, with Egypt, thinking maybe that'll, maybe that'll save us. We'll, we'll use our brains and do something diplomatic, and maybe that'll save us. Maybe that's an answer for our, 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 our political military problem. Do you ever do that when you face a problem? Instead of turning to and trusting in God, do you first scramble around trying to find a solution to the problem? Trying to tap into resources other than God's strength and wisdom first? In quietness and confidence is your strength. Before I close in a second, I want us to watch a short face story um, that highlights the life of a woman who... Um, I've, I've, I really admire and feel like exemplifies quietness before God and confidence in God. My name is Ann Ross, and I've been going to the Covenant Church all my life. I started out out in Smolin. I accepted the Lord as my Savior when I was 11 years old, November 11th, 1938. I've been privileged to have Christian parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, pastors, all those that nurtured me, and I'm so thankful for that. I've been blessed all my life. I think my faith has helped me all through life, through difficulties, through good times, through decisions you have to make, and I'm just thankful to the Lord that He's been with me and has led me and guided me. Several scriptures, I mean, it's hard to say which scriptures are the best, there's a lot of them. But be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. There's a request to be known unto God, and the peace of God, the past of all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I have another one too from it. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And I 
praying that one of these days I'll get to go be with the Lord. And I would give advice to others to give your life to the Lord early in life and let him guide you through your, your journey. And you will not be sorry. And he will keep you and lead you and guide you to many difficult times and good times too. In quietness and confidence in God, it's our strength. You know, there's, a, there's an old hymn that I, I grew up singing, and I love the new worship songs. They speak to me and move me. But there's something about some of those old classics as well. And we're going to close with the, the hymn that speaks uh, of the key to life, to life with God. And it involves trusting and obeying. The key to finding joy in life is not through our own devices or our plans or, or our resources. It's returning and resting, repenting and trusting in quietness and confidence in God. That is truly our strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we can learn from your word, uh, both from positive examples, but also negative examples. Lord, help us to be people who uh, trust in you, who walk in your ways, <coughs> who are sincere in our worship and in our relationship with you, authentic in all ways. Lord, point out to us, make it clear to us when we fall into routine or roteness. Lord, uh, use your spirit to reveal to us, Lord, when we put our trust in other things, uh, Lord, uh, show us, Lord, when we fall into hypocrisy and our words and our actions do not match up, Lord. We want to be people who abide in you, who follow you, truly who, who, um, who return to you, who rest in you, who trust you, and who obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.